Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Live from the Maid of the Mist tour boat on the Niagara River, this is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 196, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center. We are way short-staffed today. This is Tom. And this is Scott. And that is it. Uh, Today we're going to be discussing the first person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel, the U.S. leaving the UPU, and the Pan American Exhibition stamps from 1901. On October 24, 1901, 63-year-old school teacher Annie Edson Taylor became the first person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. After her husband died during the Civil War, Taylor, who was originally from New York, moved all over the United States before settling in Bay City, Michigan in 1898. Well, how might you ask, are we going to tie this to stamps? That's a good question. The answer is that she first read about the growing popularity of the now-famous falls in an article about the 1901 Pan American Exhibition that was going on in upstate New York. But we'll do more on that later. Taylor, who was essentially broke and was looking for both cash and fame, came up with the perfect attention-grabbing stunt. She would go over the falls in a barrel. Annie would not be the first to go over the falls. That was done by the Yankee leaper, Sam Patch, in October of 1829, when he survived a leap off the 175-foot Horseshoe Falls on the Canadian side of the border. And that's Taylor decided she would go over in a barrel on her birthday, October 24th, a little more than 70 years after Patch. With the help of two assistants, she was strapped into a leather harness inside a custom-made pickle barrel, which was five feet long and three feet wide. That's some big pickles. Definitely. (laughs) The barrel was lined with cushions to soften the impact of the fall. The barrel was towed into the fast current of the river by a rowboat and then cut loose. After a violent almost 20-minute ride, Taylor made it to the shore alive with only a gash on her head. Unfortunately, after a few photo ops and some interviews, her fame quickly waned. Sorry, yes, you don't get the fame you're after. Well, you know, Niagara Falls is just up the road from Buffalo where the Pan Am Exposition was happening. So there was a lot more entertainment to be had. Well, she never made the fortune that she had hoped for, but Taylor did inspire many copycats. A total of 15 people have gone over the falls between 1901 and 1995. Five of them were not as fortunate as Taylor in their results. Two of the less fortunate were Jesse Sharp, who in 1990 went over the falls in a kayak, and Robert Overcracker, who went over on a jet ski. Now, I'm not sure. I'm just imagining. Is he just trying to get distance by going over on a jet ski, hoping if I go fast enough, I won't hit the rocks? I don't know. But, uh, you know, if you're not wearing a parachute, that's a pretty long way to fall. It is. I've been there. It's a long way to fall. And I don't know, actually, if a parachute would even have time to open properly and, and actually save you. 175 feet, it might. Not sure. I've never jumped off a building or a out of a perfectly good airplane, so I wouldn't know. Well, no matter the method, going over the falls is illegal, and survivors face stiff penalties on either side of the border. 
Well, now we're going to move on to uh, some new and interesting news about the U.S. If you were listening, back in episode 188, we discussed the president was taking on the UPU regarding terminal fees. These are the fees paid for small package deliveries and are generally less than the current postal rates in the United States. The president wanted to change these rates based on complaints from other shipping companies such as UPS and FedEx. Well, apparently things didn't go so well in the UPU meeting in Ethiopia as the State Department announced last week that the U.S. will withdraw from the UPU since the meeting failed to adopt new pricing structures. Uh-oh. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, all the eBayers out there, that means that uh, you might be paying more to ship overseas now. Could be a lot more. A lot more. Now, the National Association of Letter Carriers is opposing the withdrawal, stating that the problems that have been identified by the administration are best solved by multilateral diplomacy. The NALC goes on to state that leaving the UPU could have unintended consequences for American citizens and businesses, as well as hold the potential to hurt the Postal Service itself financially. You think? <laughs> Uh, the UPU was already moving forward with measures to eliminate the Postal Service's losses due to terminal fees. See, that that's, I mean, he's just jumping on something that, I mean, they're already trying to fix it. Yeah, it's they started this a couple years ago, and he's just trying to, I don't know, get it done faster. Well, that's fine, but quitting the UPU or threatening to quit the UPU probably is not productive, I would think. I don't know because that's. It seems like an odd thing that you know we would be. Leaving I mean, if the they're UPU. already trying to fix it and they're moving forward with these measures, then what's the beef other than it's just not happening fast enough? Um, probably complaints from UPS and FedEx and big shipping companies like that would be my guess. Could be. Based on meetings in 2016, China's country status was changed by removing it from the poorest developing countries list which had been allowing it to pay the lowest rates. This is along with an increase in terminal dues for small packages and a 13% annual increase starting in 2019 and ending in 2021. The goals of these moves are to eliminate USPS shortfalls on inbound international mail, which subsidizes overseas sellers. The UPU, which consists of 192 nations, is a branch of the United Nations, and allows for consistent global rates that keep international mailing costs down while providing infrastructures such as payment and processing systems, as well as electronic data for customs officials. A pullout from the UPU could raise costs for many Americans who ship internationally and deny the U.S. access to this infrastructure. For this reason, the International Mailers Advisory Group also opposes the move. The State Department has stated that it is willing to rescind its decision to leave, which is scheduled to happen in a year, if bilateral and unilateral agreements are reached. Though negotiating rates with 191 individual countries would most likely take more than a year, and threats to leave are not exactly conducive to the negotiations process. Sadly, it appears that this decision and the August memorandum that preceded it seems to have been brought solely to serve the interests of the large shipping companies. It came from the White House Domestic Policy Council and was hidden from public view. Neither, neither the decision to leave the UPU or the August Memorandum were presented to the International Postal and Delivery Services Advisory Council by the State Department as intended by law. The IPODS, in fact, have not even met since November of 2017. Wow. 
So stick that in your pipe and smoke it because that, uh, I mean, that's like, I mean, it's not Brexit level, but (laughs) it almost is in a way. You know, we do have trouble with the Postal Service finances and their heavy bureaucracy, and they probably have a lot of positions that they could downsize and reduce um, salaries on, but uh, still... I mean, the, the fact that they're losing, mo- they claim to be losing money year after year after year, you know, a lot of things do get shipped from China now because China does produce a lot of stuff that they send over here. So, you know, eBay sellers, you're competing with the Chinese who make a lot of knockoffs and things like that. And then they get subsidized shipping on top of that. So, yeah, I, I see that. You know, but the UPU has, been, has taken steps. Like I, like you said, they removed them from the poorest developing countries list. Well, and the fact that it started in 2016, and they're going to be increasing rates 13% per year. 2019 to 2019, 2020, 20, and 21. So that's so three, for years. three years. 13% per year. That's a pretty steep uh, increase to help offset the losses that they're experiencing. So I'm not I'm not really sure like it like the article says other than to specifically to serve the other shipping companies that compete with the USPS, I'm not really sure that I understand this move. But it's not, it's not the uh it's not the other the large shipping companies that they're um that they're really comp- well, they are complaining, but the Postal Service is actually uh, – sub- they're getting less revenue and having to l- deliver these packages. And therefore, it's costing the overseas seller, so they choose not to use the big mailers. Yeah, but it's – So it, the USPS loses money, and the big mailers don't get to compete on a, f- a level playing field because, because these the mail- USPS stuff is so cheap. Right. These incoming pieces that are being delivered by the – Postal Service are cheaper for the mailers. The funny thing is, is it's really only on small stuff. But I think if you think of majority of things that people order off of places like Amazon or things like that, they're probably mostly small things anyway. Yeah, I mean... And it's not like FedEx is going to be delivering you a car. I don't know if Amazon is is really a big shipper from China. They pretty no, much I, have warehouses yeah, stationed around the country. Yeah, probably a bad example. I'm probably but, more like eBay stuff. But, you know, eBay and, and Etsy and places like that where you have a lot of uh, small individual people selling stuff. I think eBay is probably one of the biggest ones. Yeah, because I think Etsy is mostly individual people, like selling their homemade stuff, I think is what it's designed for. I don't shop right. on it. But... Um, yeah, I can definitely see eBay being a big culprit in the overseas direct shipping from China. Because this isn't stuff that's coming, you know, via ships to, you know, Walmarts or Costco's or any of these other big retail chains that are made in China. This no, is, that's this stuff, is, that this stuff is comes direct, on, on boats. This is direct shipment pricing. And most of it's airmail. But this could have a huge effect just on people who have ties in other parts of the world just writing them writing people letters. Yes. You know, this could I mean this if Yeah, these, this if isn't these, just about packages. If they pull out of the UPU, that means our 
international letter rates could go way, you know, just really screwy. Right. And this on top of the fact that uh, we'll probably be reporting on this in the next couple of weeks, the USPS working on raising stamp prices all the way up to 55 cents in one go. Yeah, they want a 10% increase this year. So uh, we'll probably one, talk about that more in a week or two because they're trying to get that through for January. I, I do like the fact that, that you know it's a round number. You know, 49 cents was not a round number. But at the same time, you know, a five cent increase, that's a that's a big increase to swallow at one point. Yeah. Although most people don't mail their bills on uh by the mail anymore. Most of them are doing it online now. Yes, Except, but that could cause even more of that to well, go away. But I at this point I think probably most of it has gone over to the internet. Uh you're you're still gonna have probably the septuagenarian octogenarian that generation is probably still paying their bills a lot by mail i know my dad does but uh the bill payments online for anybody that's you know in their 60s or younger is pretty much happened already well i have i have a bill that i get quarterly for my kids insurance and the only option that the insurance company gives me is to send them a check. I have to put a check in the mail every quarter. See, my bank, so if, I pay, if I pay through my bank and they can't do an electronic transfer, they'll actually cut a check and send the check for me. And <laughs> now, it, but it tells you, you know, electronic delivery is next day. But if they have to actually cut a check, it can be seven days, five to seven days before it clears. Uh, your payment, so so they give you a warning there saying, this is a check that has to go out. Make sure you have enough time for them to receive the check before your bill is due. But in that case, it's still going in the mail, though. Yeah, but then again... Although it's probably going to be a more of a bulk rate. It's going to be a bulk rate. It's, it'll probably be a meter. And uh, yeah, you, n no stamp will ever be used. True. So... Um, but it makes the bill payments all in one place on, on the computer much easier. And I think, like I said, most people who are going to switch, switch. Yeah, You're right. There is one bill I pay uh, quarterly. It's my homeowners association. They, I just figure I'd send them a check once a quarter and I'm done with it. I'll probably start sending it once a year since it's such a small amount. But anyway, yeah, I've, I've switched all mine to electronic now as well well let's move on to the pan am exhibition of 1901 yay stamps because these are actually some of my favorite person these are some of my personal favorite stamps if you were there in 1901 then you might already know but since most or more likely all of us were not there here is a description of the post office exhibit that was located in the u.s government building of the exhibition in 1901 the government post office exhibit is in the southeast corner of the main building and so attractive that it is constantly filled with visitors. It contains six large model postal steamers, including the Paris, which was the Yale during the Spanish War, and the Kaiser Wilhelm de Gross. A most interesting exhibit is one illustrating the delivery of mail in the different parts of Uncle Sam's country. Most attractive is the Pony Express, showing a life-size rider on a full-size horse, with his mailbags and equipment complete. 
The background is a reproduction of the Rocky Mountain scenery. Another scene is of snow and ice, and in the midst of this is a sled with dogs and driver, all life-size. These dogs, when alive, pulled the same sled over the Mackinac and Sault St. Marie routes. That's Sault St. Marie. Fine, be that way. <laughs> I don't know Sue. Why would I? I don't know St. Marie. Why would I sue her? A model of the old Southerner, a square-rigged sidewheeler, the first steamer to carry the U.S. mail across the Atlantic, is also shown. Scenes typical of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines are exhibited. The costume and outfits used in each country is displayed on life-size models. I would suppose those are for, like, postal workers or carriers or something like that. I I would guess. I don't know. Like I said, this is this was, like, the actual description from back then, so... Well, in in nineteen, you got to remember in nineteen oh one, the U.S. had these uh, possession territories, right? And so, delivering the mail there was also part of their job, which is why it would be part of the exhibit. The battered old Rocky Mountain mail coach is in the center of the government postal exhibit. This relic of the early days of mail carrying in the West of Indian fights, captures and recaptures, and untold scenes of thrilling and melodramatic interest is a veteran of exhibitions as well as of the trails. All who attended the great fairs in Chicago and Paris probably have read from the cardboard inscription on the door, this coach has carried many famous people, including General Sherman and President Garfield. The coach used to carry mail between Fort Ellis and Helena, Montana, it was once captured by the Indians and held for some time and recaptured again by General O.O. O. Howard. The passenger department of the Missouri Pacific Railway and the Iron Mountain Route has prepared a collection of 100 pictures which are exhibited in this section. The collection embraces every conceivable phase of activity on either of these lines. There are represented in the number views of every character from the quiet cattle scene of Acadian simplicity to the infernal activity of the smelters and mines in the great mineral region. From the peaceful existence of the model farms to the rugged beauty and hardness of the Ozarks. Others depict the beautiful stretches of smooth yet swiftly flowing water of the Father of Waters, lined in one hand by time-defying bluffs, behind which, stretched out in the smiling beauty of well-tended farms, lie some of the most productive fields in the country. Father of Waters. Is that the Mississippi? I've never heard that term before. Uh, more than likely. Because I couldn't imagine what else it would be. Um, and it doesn't explain it, so I'm like, okay, someone in 1901 would probably know that, but I don't know that term. The collection of articles sent through the mails and of articles which have been sent to the dead letter offices exhibited in cases. There are models at different places in the exhibit of the uniform and paraphernalia of the postmen of the different countries of the world. That sounds like a pretty cool thing, actually. Yeah. When was this, and why did we have it? Uh, you may know the why, but I can give you the when. The exposition, which was held in Buffalo, New York, ran from May 1st through November 2nd, 1901. The cost of entry was 25 cents, and it drew an estimated 8 million visitors. Well, that's an awful long time for an exposition. Usually around... Well, wasn't it like considered like one of the World's Fairs, though? Um, not really. I mean, it, 
you know, today an exposition is usually like 10 days or two weeks. But back then it was months. And well, I think part of that had to do with... the whole year. Well, May through November. May through November. Oh, May. Yeah, May. Sorry, I was thinking January for some reason. So it ran for six months. But, I mean, that also goes to show uh, the speed of transportation, too. Nowadays, you hop on a plane, you're there in a few hours. Right. Back then, it might take you a week to get there or more. Well, with 8 million people that showed up, I mean, in Buffalo, New York, you could imagine how far people must have traveled. Because 8 million in 1901 has got to be a lot of people. Well, you know, from from Buffalo to New York City is about 450 miles or so. And, you know, if so if you take a 500-mile radius, you can probably hit New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, which are the major population centers at the time. Right. And you're you're not much further to Boston. You know, you might make it to Washington, D.C. So saying that there were 8 million visitors, some of them obviously multiple times. But, uh, you know, to to think about how many people back then lived within a 500-mile radius, which is a short train ride or a couple days by carriage, which is basically how you would have to travel. How short of a train ride? I don't know how, how fast did trains move then. I mean, it's probably half a day. Or well, it's probably a full day train ride. I mean, if you figure an average of fifty miles an hour, five hundred mile rides, ten hours. Trains go that fast then? Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Them steam engines were something. With this view in mind, is it any wonder that for the Pan American Exposition, the United States Post Office Department issued a set of stamps that are beautifully rendered? These are the Pan American issue and are Scott numbers 294 through 299. And the set of six has face values of one, two, four, five, eight, and 10 cents. The stamps were not issued to commemorate a specific event or anniversary. They were specifically designed to publicize the event and bear the phrase commemorative series 1901 at the top of each stamp in order to circumvent the current postal rules that the USPOD could not issue new stamps for advertising purposes. That's funny that these were really just an advertisement. Well, it was the same thing with the Colombian exposition stamps, I believe. They, was it? Yeah, they had they had a law that you couldn't commemorate that, so, but so I they had to advertise it instead of commemorating it. Right. Commemorate it instead of advertising it. Yeah. What oh I said that backwards, didn't you I? You did. <laughs> the stamps were issued on May first, nineteen oh nine, and were engraved by the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. The paper used is double-line watermarked, and the stamps are PERF-12. The stamps, which were printed in two colors, show the following. The one cent represents Fast Lake Navigation and features the steamship City of Alpina, which operated on the Great Lakes. The two cent represents Fast Express and features the Empire State Express, the New York Central and Hudson River Railroads. Hence the short transit time between New York City and Buffalo because you have goods that are coming through the port of New York and then they get over to the Erie Canal to make it make their way through the Great Lakes or to over to Lake Chicago yeah 
The four cent represents the automobile and features an electric automobile in front of the Capitol building as it appeared in a Baltimore and Ohio railroad flyer. Not a Prius. Not a Prius. No. <laughs> but we've come full circle. Other, we've gone other from kind a, of electric automobile. We've, we've gone from electric automobiles to gas-powered to back to electric. I actually read in one of the research things that it was an electric taxi. So I don't know which one is correct. I know it's an automobile. I don't know that it's well, a taxi since most for sure. Pe- well, since most people didn't have automobiles to begin with, and, you know, it may, kind of makes sense that somebody would use it as a taxi to yeah, kind of try and, try and pay for it and to publicize the, the newfangled machine. The five cent shows the bridge over Niagara Falls, which at the time was the largest single-span steel bridge in the world and connected the United States and Canada. See, now that was an interesting little tidbit. I'd never heard that before. I've been on that bridge. Now you need a passport. <laughs> right. <laughs> the eight cent shows the locks at Sault Ste. Marie, which were a great feat of engineering of the time. The locks provided links between Lake Superior and Lake Huron, allowing for maritime navigation, which, of course, led to the delivery of a lot of stuff via the Great Lakes. Absolutely. The ten cent represents fast. 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 I'm going to start talking like Sean Connery now. No, I'm not. The 10 cent represents fast ocean navigation and shows the American steamship St. Paul, which was the first commercial ship to be commissioned as a warship during the Spanish-American War. Now, see, I found this part really interesting. I always saw the pictures on the stamps. I never knew that they had particular representations like this. So that was kind of a a neat little learning thing for me. That was one of the things that kind of got me hooked on stamp collecting way, way, way back in the beginning for me as I started actually, you know, I got a bunch of these stamps from the early 20th century and and I started looking them up and I go, oh, that's cool because they, they actually represented all this history that I had never learned about or just barely touched on in high school or in any schooling actually. Back in my day when rocks were soft. Another <laughs> another little tidbit, the uh, Pan-American Exposition is also famous for the assassination of President McKinley. Yes. Which I'm sure we've talked about on a previous episode way in the back. I don't know if we did or not, but I saw that and I'm like, nah, I'm going to talk about the stamps. I'm going to leave the assassination out of this. Well, it was part of the exposition, though. Because it happened not at an, the exposition. Not, a, not an intentional part. <laughs> no, not an intentional part, but it is part of the, the history of it. That is a fair statement. <laughs> <laughs> in 1901, multicolor printing was still in its infancy, and of course, mistakes were made. The stamps had the black vignettes printed first and were then moved to another press to print the colored borders of the stamps. Any misalignment of the sheets between the plates produced shifts that are anywhere from minor to major. While some of these shifts can be severe enough to be considered a fault when it comes to grading, the most severe became their own varieties, such as the faster sinking ships or the high train among some of the others in the group. Yes. I, those are the ones that I've, I know I've seen off the top of my head, but I don't know what other ones there are. Well, there's there's um, fast trains and slow trains, flying trains. Well, that's what I thought the high train was. Yeah, the high train or flying train. Uh, but you also have fast and slow trains, fast and slow ships, sinking ships, flying ships. Um, it's interesting are that there you any, don't... Are there any crazy bridge ones? 
Or canal ones? Um, I've seen a couple, but I don't really know that there are are any. They've given the names named for variety them. kind of thing. Well, because the the bridge and the and the locks are not things that are supposed to be moving. So <laughs> one would hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and as far as the automobile goes, uh, you don't see a lot of shifts on that. And most of the shifts you do see are very minor. Well, the true errors only occurred on the one and two cent stamps. This error, of course, is the inverted vignettes. These well, actually, it's the inverted frames because the vignettes were printed first. Technically, yes. <laughs> but when but we look, everybody says center center inverted. They don't they don't say that the border was inverted. Right. Because everybody, you hold it so you can read the denomination and everything. So I know, but technically it was so oh, just something. I, <laughs> technically, I, technically. I had to bring it up. These stamps had the sheets placed upside down after the black was printed, causing the vignette to appear upside down when compared to the border. These stamps are 294A and 295A. There is another quote error which was the inverted four cent stamp. This, however, was not a true error as it was printed intentionally, albeit because of a misunderstanding. Now, I think Scott and I have differing stories on this, so I'll read the one we have, and then Scott can tell us what the differences were between okay. what between what I found in my reading and what you've heard from yours. Okay. After the discovery of one of the two cent inverts, third postmaster Edwin Madden decided to track down any additional errors. He instructed the Bureau of Engraving and Printing to send him any of the inverted Pan-American stamps they discovered to his office. There were no more inverts found, and that should have been the end of it. The BEP, however, misunderstood Madden's letter and thought he was demanding inverted stamps. So they printed four sheets of the four-cent stamp inverted and sent 400 stamps to Madden. Okay, so here's where the story differs. Oh, let me finish mine first. Okay. Fine. All right. The word specimen was stamped in purple ink on about half of the stamps. Between 1901 and 1904, Madden gave 172 copies to friends, families, and associates, as well as keeping one for himself, both with and without the specimen overprint. Now, you heard differently, Scott? Yes. Because when... The, when uh, PM uh third PMG third postmaster Madden when he was communicating with the BEP you know he was under the impression there were 1 cent 2 cent and 4 cent stamps that had been sold and so that's what he directed the bureau to be looking for when they misunderstood and they there were no 4 cents stamps either in their possession or that had been sold that's why they printed some. So it still comes out of a... Oh, it's a miscommunication. Miscommunication. But, okay. the, but the fact that they were never released was the big kicker. Right. You know, th there were rumors, there were things like that, and he had heard the rumors, and he so he thought that they were in existence when they really weren't, and then the BEP went and actually made them. An official investigation was launched, but Madden was cleared of any wrongdoing as there was no money changing hands. Of the remaining copies, a pane of 100 went to the Government Collection of American Stamps at the Washington National Museum. They traded 97 of the inverts to other collectors for rare items not currently in the museum's collection. 
There are no existing records of what happened to the remaining stamps. And this is where you go, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Though the four-cent invert is listed as 296A, it also has a catalog listing for the specimen overprint of 296AS. Try again. Try what? I thought it was AS. There. Read my comment. S-A. Fine. Be that way. 296SA. Buyers of these overprints should be careful, and a certificate of authenticity should be obtained for these rare errors, as they are often faked, and there are many of the 296As where the specimen overprint has been removed. I have seen many of them myself. Yes. And, and it's, it's, a, it's It's really a small overprint. It's not that large. And they tend to be off in the corners or at the edges of the stamp, not in the middle. So it's real easy. Not First of all, it's easy to miss if it is there. And second of all, uh, whatever ink they used was fairly easy to remove. Well, um, it was just like a it was just like a hand stamp, too. It wasn't yeah. like it was well, so typographed or, or something so, on there. So are cancels. But right. whatever ink they used was susceptible to whatever they used to remove it. And... It they just so it's easy to remove and it. Uh... Well, we are going to have in the pictures. I did find a stamp with the specimen overprint, which it's funny because it's actually it's upside down and like a forty-five degree angle. So they weren't like they weren't like um, Shanghai's or even Kansas, Nebraska's, where they were generally all kind of in the well, same the, spot. Well, they the, were all over the place. Well, Shanghai's and Kansas, Nebraska's weren't hand-stamped. Right. They were typographed, and they were done on the press. But it's just like, you know, someone wasn't sitting there taking care to where they stamped it. They were just like, they were just like, stamp, chicka, 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 wherever it landed on the sheet, so be it. Yes. Although they did seem to, I haven't seen one that where they like missed the stamp and it's like between two stamps. So you have like SPEC on one. No, and- I, I I don't think they were going real fast. I think they were actually kind of careful. They were trying to put it over on the side away from the inverted vignette so that, uh, so that it wouldn't visually detract from the stamp as much. Since they did do them on purpose. Yeah, and, and the fact that they... They only did two of the sheets, so it's not like it was something that was going to take a long time to do anyway. Right. But uh, the other thing, uh, you don't just see these inverts with the the specimen removed. You also see them completely faked from normal stamps. Right, and that was kind of the the first part of my thing because you you know we've talked about you know people you will see things like where people have carved out or rubbed out the original overprint and then take another take one from another stamp and turn it upside down and put it in there and glue it back on and yeah well um, you see that you see that a lot with the inverted jenny too yeah it's you find fakes yeah i think you see the same the same general fakery that you would see on the c3a yeah but you know the the trick is doing it well and I've seen some that are really good, and I've seen some that are really obvious. I've seen some really bad ones. But the scariest one to me, I think, is is the specimen overprints, because I've seen them removed, and Absolutely we're, we're fortunate at, 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 at our office to have a VSC, and they, they pop up like They're night very and day. obvious. Very obvious. But... And I've even had one pop up. We got one that was canceled. It was a used example. 
and the the word specimen popped up through the cancel ink that was put on it. You could read specimen in the side. I should actually that's cool. I have a picture of that I should post it on the the notes. Yeah, put, so put people that can in the see, notes so people can see kind of what we get to see. Um, but it's like holy cow because if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. I mean, when these are removed, they are gone. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's uh, rarely can you see that see the removed specimen with just a magnifying glass. Well, and nowadays, I think I didn't look up the values, but the the specimen actually is relatively significant into the thousand dollar range now. I think isn't it like four or five thousand dollars for that one? Well, we'll look it up after we finish recording, and you can post that in the notes. Okay, I'll do that. Okay. Any well, more comments on Pan Americans? No, I think I'm 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 out. You're out. I have to say it's it's by far I think my favorite set of stamps. Well, it's a very attractive set of stamps. You know, it's the bicolors and which in and of themselves kind well, of. Well, I always are and I always and I always want to say it's the first one, but it's not. Because they had the pictorials, the 1869s had. Had some inverts, had yes. some. Well, they had the bicolors, though. Yes. So I just, I always want to think of it as being the first ones, but I know they're not, because the pictorials were, right? Yes. Or at least for U.S. For U.S., yes. And, you know, this this particular set, I believe, is what uh, um, William Roby, who was the guy who found the, the inverted Jenny sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, he was aware that the bicolor printing process could possibly produce inverts. And I think it was because he had been around for this expo- exposition and had realized and had heard about these inverts and seen them. That he went out looking for the... And so he went specifically on the day of issue to Washington to find, to, to buy a sheet to see if he could find one. <laughs> and lo and behold sneaky sneaky and lo and behold he did and it's it just an amazing coincidence that he was looking for it and he found it yep oh i guess the last thing on these if you want to get uh grades on these pan-american stamps they are notoriously small margined which makes getting high grades in them well, an- relatively difficult. A- another another point is the fact that they don't have straight square borders. They no, have no, they, they have a lot, a lot of scroll work typically at the top of the stamp, which makes you think that there's more room up there than there is. Yeah, yeah, especially yeah, because the the tops are usually in. It's funny because we're sitting here talking about it, and we actually have pictures of the inverts on the wall in the uh, studio here. And I'm actually while we're talking, I'm staring at this. The pictures behind Scott's head going, yeah, that's right. Most of the scroll work is in at the top, which makes them look very big. But they're not. Well, I only have one new issue this week. Oh, It's actually Canada Post, isn't it? It is Canada. The only new issue we have for this week is a stamp celebrating the armistice that ended World War I issued by Canada Post. And I don't know if that was an announced stamp previously or not, because I didn't have it in my list of things coming out. If anyone wants to try and hear about other new issues, I typically peruse Royal Mail, Canada Post, and the USPS looking for new issues. 
if you collect other areas and you can give me links to other post offices uh, or where to find their new releases, I will be more than happy to add to this. But this is kind of what I've started with because I think most of our listeners are probably going to be more U.S. and Great Britain in that kind of area. I think that's where most of our demographic lies, which is why I've chosen these three specifically. But uh, if you have a specific post you'd like to hear us talk about new issues on, uh, send an email to stampshowheretoday at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to look it up and see what we can add to it. Canadian soldiers stood at... All right, help me out. Yippers? I don't know. All right. Fair enough. I'm going to run with it then. (laughs) Canadian soldiers stood fast at Ypres, stormed the Regina Trench, climbed the heights of Vimy Ridge, captured Passchendaele, and on November 11th, 1918, entered Mons. The immense sacrifice of our soldiers earned the country widespread recognition and had a profound impact on Canada. The stamp depicts a dove suspended above barbed wire and includes the image of a poppy, a powerful symbol of remembrance and the principal emblem of the Royal Canadian Legion. The imagery symbolizes struggle, peace, and remembrance and honors those who made the supreme sacrifice in defense of freedom and democracy. The stamp was unveiled at the Pearly and Rideau Veterans Health Center, which has the responsibility to provide care for veterans. The stamp is canceled in Ottawa, home of the National War Memorial, which appears on the back of the official first day cover. Canada's war effort was remarkable, but victory came at a terrible price. Of more than 650,000 Canadians who served with the Allies, more than 66,000 were killed and 172,000 wounded. After more than four years of horrific trench warfare, fighting came to an abrupt end at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. The armistice, signed earlier that morning in a railway car near Compiègne, France, silenced the guns on the Western Front and brought relief to the world that had never before seen such a conflict. The stamp, which comes in a booklet of 10, is available on CanadaPost.ca and postal outlets across Canada. And I don't know if you went down and looked, but this is a really pretty stamp. I mean, I have not looked yet. But it's I'm, all the way down at the bottom, I'm but it's now. it's another really nice. Oh yeah, stamp produced by Canada. Oh, you know, I just thought of something that we didn't mention about the Pan American Exposition stamps. What is that? That would be the reissues of the inverts. Oh yes, I forgot about that. In. Uh, 2001, the re, U.S. reissued a, a sheet that contained not only one of each value of the inverted stamps in the sheet, it also included a, a what was previously an exposition label. But they is, that actually, the, is that the diamond-shaped diamond stamp shaped with the buffalo, buffalo stamp? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I forgot about that. I didn't mention yeah. that when uh, I was doing my... I but, didn't... It's a good looking I didn't, sheet. I didn't find that when I was doing my research, and I read about it somewhere, and then by the time I was done writing the article, I gone. <laughs> so sorry. Well, I was just I was just looking at the images, and I thought I saw a uh, one that looked a little bit shinier than the others, and it it wasn't. It was just the eight cent, just the image of the eight cent 
But it reminded you of the But it reminded me of the brighter colors of the reissue. Yeah, those really pop. Those are pretty too. And those again and those unlike the and yes, but unlike the originals, they has a pretty large borders on them though. They have bigger borders, but uh, generally, if you find one well-centered, one on a sheet, the other two are off because the perforations didn't seem to match the spacing properly. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. I mean, you're lucky if you get two, but... Three, forget about it. <laughs> yeah, forget about three. And then a lot of times you don't get any. Well, we have some upcoming shows. November 3rd and 4th, Sacapex in Sacramento, California is sacramentophilatelicsociety.org for their website. November 3rd and 4th, AAPEX is in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Their website is annarborstampclub.org. November 3rd, the MSC Monthly Bourse in Pensacola, New Jersey. Their website is merchantvillestampclub.org. November 3rd, the annual Reading Stamp Club show in Leesport, Pennsylvania. November 3rd and 4th, Pitpex 2018 in Bridgeville, Pennsylvania. Their website is pittsburghstampclub.org. And also we have on November 4th, the original Van Nuys Sunday Stamp Show in Van Nuys, California, which is stampshowsteve.com. Don't forget also that we have our contest running for Postcard and Letter Week and National Stamp Collecting Month. I have received a few entries, but only a few so far. So the people who have submitted have a really good chance of getting something. If you want to win one of the three 95 stamps that uh, have been graded, I would love to get more entries. Please just remember the cutoff date is a postmark of October 31st. After that, um, you're out of luck, and probably the next, probably the second show in November is when we'll draw the winners for the contest. Thank you for listening. This has been Stamp Show here today, episode number 196. This was Tom. And this was Scott. And this was nobody else. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.